Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milstreet Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Dan Dan is when 
the workers in the field would get fed by somebody who would come through with the long pole with two buckets, one on either end of the pole. And the noodles are in one bucket, and then the sauce is in the other. And the key to successful Dan Dan noodles is to make sure that the sauce is super, super flavorful, because otherwise you'd need too much sauce. Joanne Chang is owner of the Boston-based bakery and cafe Flower, as well as co-founder of the restaurant Myers & Chang, with her husband, Christopher Myers. She uses her degree in applied mathematics and her love of food to make money and also to make her customers happy. But before we get to my conversation with Joanne, I'm speaking with Brad Leone. He's the kitchen manager of Bon Appetit, also host of the web series It's Alive with Brad, which is all about fermentation. So let's just start with the obvious question, which is what is fermentation? Well, fermentation is where you're taking a vegetable and you're either adding some water to it or some salt or some spices. But essentially what you're doing, and this is something that's been happening for as long as people have been cooking food, to my knowledge, is it used to just be a method of preservation before refrigeration, but you're essentially controlling the rot of vegetables, and our bodies are geared to where that actually is beneficial to us. So are pickled vegetables fermented, or is that is pickling different than fermentation? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, they can be both, but typically pickling is not fermented. Pickling usually involves like A lot of pickling, you'll make a brine, you'll heat it, you'll pour it over the vegetables, and then you'll let that kind of do its own little thing. And then you chill it, and that becomes like a pickle. Or you can just do like, I did a a half-sour pickle, and that you just pour brine in, put the whole thing in the fridge. And then you you can do vinegars, and you you can chop up some carrots or radishes and soak it in like some rice wine vinegar and some, some salt and sugar. Uh, So what is koji, fermented rice? How does that work? Yeah, so koji is a a rice grain that is inoculated with a mold, but it's the backbone in, say, making miso, and uh, and yeah, it's a pretty pretty neat um, ingredient. When I learned to cook back in the 60s and 70s, it was Julia Child, and it it was mostly French cooking and American cooking, and slowly new American cooking came around, and we had a certain way of cooking and where we got our recipes, etc. So... You're a lot younger than I am. How do you think about cooking? Where do you get your recipes? Or how do you cook at home? It's probably very yeah. different than the way I was cooking 40 years ago. Probably very different, sure. Um, yeah, that's an interesting thing. I mean, for me, uh, I know a lot of, even some of the you know, folks that are my age are, are trained cl- like classic French is their foundation, which I think is really great. And I think... Um, you can learn a lot of really valuable techniques and stuff like that. But, uh, I mean, I'm never cooking a bechamel. I want nothing to do with most creamy sauces. At home, it's kind of, I like to, like, listen to my gut. I wake up in the morning and I start thinking, all right, well, you know, what am I going to, I sound like my dad. Like, what are, what are we going to have for dinner tonight? You know, and, like, <laughs> it, I'd like to plan throughout the day. But, uh, you know, I'm a big soup guy. I'm a big braised guy. Simple stuff. You know, less is more. So what was the last thing you cooked for dinner? Last night, my dad made pork and venison and dewey that he smoked, and he, he froze it for me. And I had a couple in the freezer. I defrosted mm. it, and I browned it off. And then I take some uh, onions, some, a lot of carrots, and some garlic, and I put it in the food processor until it gets, like, you know, just 
pea-sized pieces, and then I sweat that out in some olive oil. Then I put the andouille back in, a little bit of wine, and then some uh, crushed tomatoes. And we had mm-hmm. that with raviolis. Okay. I'm impressed. It was delicious. Um, so give me two or three rules, you know, things people really need to know if they want to try fermentation at home. I'd hate to call it rules, but there's some good practices and guidelines that you should follow. Cleanliness, for sure. I mean, you can have the best ingredients and the best technique. If you put your ingredients that you're going to ferment in a vessel that isn't cleaned properly, it has a real good chance that it's going to be contaminated and can harbor harmful bacteria that can get into your food. So that can cause some sickness. That can cause your whole project to go afoul. Um, So one rule would be cleanliness and, you know, just taking care of your equipment. And then the second one would be getting gear that is made for fermentation. Uh, You don't want to just use, you know, a spackle bucket. I mean, I'm sure you could, but you want (laughs) to get food-grade plastics or food-grade glass. Or if you're going to be doing some kind of carbonated beverage, you want to get bottles that can handle that pressure. Any kind of fermentation is going to be consuming something, usually sugar, and then excreting gas. And if it's in a sealed jar or a vessel that can't handle building up of pressure, you essentially you're making a little bomb. And I've had a couple instances where, you know, luckily no one got hurt, but things have blown up and it can A, make a mess and B, you know, ruin your project and you can honestly get hurt. So those would be my two rules. Brad, thank you so much. Hey, it's nice to talk to you. That was Brad Leone, kitchen manager, Bon Appetit, host of It's Alive with Brad. Milstreet Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows on your phone, and listen anytime. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time to answer some questions from our listeners. I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go? Chris, I am ready to do this. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Susan Stein. How can we help you? So I was recently introduced to the sous vide. I have a friend who is obsessed with it, and we had a dinner party together, and we cooked with the sous vide. We had to make 12 poached eggs, so it worked really well for that. And we made fish with it. And I was just wondering what you think about it on a practical day-to-day level. Um, Also, I'm wondering about the heat from the sous vide if it disrupts the chemicals in the plastic, which, you know, causes leaching. Well, it's like a pressure cooker. If you really love it and use it all the time, it's great. I mean, the good thing is the wand-style sous vides, you know, that don't have a whole tub and everything, are 100 to 200 bucks. Some of them are under 100. They're easier to store because they're not so big. And obviously, you can't overcook something. You set the water to 165 or 70 for chicken, you go away for two hours, take three phone calls, watch a movie, and you know it's not going to be overcooked. So that's the good news. But you can also poach a chicken without using a sous vide machine. I've used it, and we tested it. And one of the things we did was put the boneless, skinless chicken breast with the sauce, sort of a chili-based sauce, in the plastic, and then sous vide it. And that was actually pretty cool. That, that was pretty that cool. That sounds wonderful, because then you have an exchange of flavors. Yeah. And the mole, you know, the eggs that are done just right for yeah, like a, I think it's great for eggs. Like a frise salad or something yeah. is great. Right. So it worked really yeah. well for But I don't need spot. it, you know, for a steak. I'll just throw a steak in a low oven until it gets up to 90 or 100 degrees, then finish it in a skillet or on the grill. You know, I don't need sous vide. 
I think for chicken, it's particularly good. Well, I'd say also, as long as you follow the directions, it's idiot-proof because it gets you to the temperature and not beyond that you want to be for whatever you're cooking. I just think it you lose some of the fun of cooking. You know, you're not touching, smelling, feeling, being involved as much as you used to. I think you're channeling Julia Child. That's, that's <laughs> well, what she I, would say. But I love that part of it, you know. That's so, true. But, yeah. but I think it's a very personal choice. If you like it and you enjoy working with it, then you should, you know, have one. Right. So what I also found was things looked anemic when they came out. Yes. So we still stuck them on a pan. Yeah. Yeah, you have to sear it. You have to sear it. You know, once I'm doing that. Well, you you can take the fish and put it in a skillet on some lemon slices and parsley stems and a little wine and cook it in 11 minutes with a top on and you're done. If you're going to use it, great. My guess is six months after you buy one, it's in the basement. (laughs) Okay. That's that what I would guess. That's exactly why I haven't invested yeah. in it yet. Well, thank you for your time. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi. This is Catherine from Brentwood, Tennessee. How can we help you? Well, I'm a pie maker. Oh, good. And I tried your foolproof single crust pie dough uh-huh. from the magazine yeah. with a pecan pie recipe that I've made quite a bit. And it looked beautiful when it came out of the oven. And when I cut into it, the entire bottom crust had levitated off the bottom of the pan and up right below the pecan topping and above the jellied filling. And I have no idea what I did wrong. A volcanic eruption in the it oven. Was. <laughs> did you, uh, a few questions, did you pre-bake the crust before you added the filling? I did not, oh. only because I've made this pie a lot and the original recipe does not call for blind baking, so I didn't think to do it. When I do pumpkin pie or uh, pecan pie, I always pre-bake, and that might help. After you rolled it out and put it in the pie plate, did you let it sit in the fridge or in the freezer for a while before you I filled it? I let it sit in the fridge. For like half an hour or something? Yeah, what I, I think it says in your recipe that you're supposed to do that, so I followed it to the letter. And I'm just going to keep asking questions till I... I bore you, and no, I can't no, answer. Um, and how hot was the oven, and what rack was it on? It was in the middle, yeah. and I think it was 375. 375, something like that. Is this a Pyrex pie plate or a metal? A Pyrex. Well, one thing that might help is putting the uh, rack at the bottom. Uh, oh. Pyrex is a good choice. And then set the oven for 425 for the first 10 or 15 minutes with pecan pie made the first 10 minutes. In fact, I would pre-bake it, but you could try well, I'll that. I'll do that from now on. Well, pre-baking, you're going to get the crust to set, set. yeah. Because all that filling is not going to let it set, and it can do that. So I, I would do that, and I would use the bottom rack, use a Pyrex plate, put double foil in it. And also, when you fit the dough into the pie plate, what's also helpful is pushing, and you may do this, push down the sides of the dough into the pan a little. Don't stretch it. Yeah, make sure it's not stretched. Right. Did you say the oil, the pan? No. No. Oh, okay. No, no I don't. <laughs> that would be interesting. Well, <laughs> and pre-bake it for 20 to 25 minutes. Take the foil off, a 375 oven, and then make sure you get some browning on it so it's really set. The trick in pre-baking, and you've done it lots of times, I can tell, is that it's really dry. It's not wet and malleable. That The crust right. is set. And once it's set, then it's not going to move around. I would definitely pre-bake for pecan pie. Well, I will pre-bake it. But by the way, the crust that was on the outside was delicious. <laughs> it's just the 90% of it that went was up in the... In the middle. Yeah, yeah the just the entire in middle. the middle. Yeah, yeah. jeez. <laughs> but uh, always bake pies on the lower rack because you'll get the bottom crust to yeah. bake up fast. 
that's a great tip, and I will follow that the next time I do this. Okay. All the best. Good luck. Yes. Oh, okay. All Thanks right. so much. Yep. Bye. This is Most Great Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you want to know why baking times are always wrong or what to do with Harissa, give us a ring. Our number is 855-426-9843. Once again, 855-426-9843. Or please email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Karen. How can we help you? Well, my daughter has recently become vegan, and she's been trying out a variety of muffin and sweetbread recipes and other baking recipes that are vegan recipes, but we've been really disappointed with the way they've come out, just either too sweet or a strange texture, just not what we're used to. I thought maybe I could try some family recipes and try to veganize them. That sounds kind of dangerous. You're going to veganize them. It's okay. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, it's like weaponize them. Yeah. Sinister. <laughs> I don't know. Well, anyway, I was wondering if there's a way, there's um, a non-dairy egg substitute that I could try to use or um, substitute for a recipe that may have used butter or milk or sour cream and what, you know, is there a way to substitute or I should just... Well, there are obviously egg replacements you can buy in the supermarket and We've tried those. They seem to work okay. You know, flaxseed and water, you know, flaxseed swells up and gets Gr- ground, th- is a thickener. Ground flaxseed, yeah. yeah. And that also works. I mean, the problem is you can't, I would not suggest you veganize, uh, <laughs> I love that term, uh, a recipe because having done uh, a lot of this before, it's very tricky, especially in baking. And so I would strongly suggest you start with a cookbook that's done this already and then amend those recipes as you like. But there's all sorts of complications because structure in cakes or quick breads or cookies or muffins are, it's a tricky to substitute eggs or substitute other things in those dairy and those recipes. You definitely want to start with, start with a cookbook. I would also say, you know, why don't you attempt the kind of desserts that don't require eggs or butter or animal products like a crisp or something where you can use oatmeal and nuts and seeds on top of fruit, you know, instead of trying to, we're at an early point in vegan baking that I would just say, just do yummy desserts that don't need the vegan ingredients. Try the egg replacers. That's the first thing I would do. Right, right. Mm. But you had mentioned trying a crisp, but doesn't that use the butter on the topping? You can use, use oil. oil. Use oil. oil. You just need okay. fat, so just you know. Straight yeah. cooking oil. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I've tried coconut oil, but then it gives it a really strong coconut flavor. Well, you, and, if you... Which may work on some things, but in other pies, it's just... You no, know, you can use a neutral oil. The problem is it'll bake up like a shortbread or a cookie. It's going to be, be very crisp. Yeah. It's not going to be flaky. Or you can use a graham cracker style crust. I guess you could use oil instead of butter. But, oh, it, it, no, it's but not graham cracker already has butter oh, and true. stuff in it. Yeah, you'd have to get oh. a vegan graham cracker, and I'm sure there are some. Okay. Anyway, try the egg replacements, but I would definitely go with a cookbook. and I would start with someone you know who's okay. done baking books. Because they've already done yeah. the whole trial and error situation. Right. That's what, okay. yeah. Yeah. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Joanne Chang. She's founder of Boston's Flower Bakery, also co-owner of the restaurant Myers & Chang. After the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. 
Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook I often cook with it so if I'm creating some kind of stew I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash obviously (laughs) and I think because of that Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it you're reminded like oh wow. Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. 
Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Military Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Many years ago, Joanne Chang called to ask me about opening a bakery in Boston's South End. I gave her an enthusiastic thumbs up, not because I thought it was necessarily a good business idea, but because I personally wanted a good bakery nearby so I could buy donuts, cookies, croissant, and coffee. Joanne opened in our pretty tough neighborhood. She lived above the store, but she made such a success of flour that she opened many more in the years to follow. She also opened an Asian restaurant with her husband, Christopher Myers, called Myers and Chang. Her latest cookbook is Myers and Chang at Home, and it was just published. Joanne, how are you? I'm great. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Uh, we met on the phone in 1999. I was living in the south end of Boston on Worcester Square. Uh, you called me and said, should I open a flower bakery on Washington Street? And I I remember what I said. I was very enthusiastic because I was desperate <laughs> for some place to get a sandwich. And you did. Uh, and, and I have to say, it completely changed the entire neighborhood. It really Thank did. Thank you. So just tell us about that first startup, what was Washington Street like? I think you lived above the store, as I it did. were. Yeah. Uh, and, and what was that like? Well, it's funny to hear you say that I called you. I don't remember specifically because I think I called everybody at the time. I was looking around for a location for flour and had looked in literally every neighborhood in Boston. And I happened upon the space that we're in. And I looked around and I thought, can I do it here? I mean, it didn't seem like there was a lot going on there, as you know. At the time, there was, there weren't really any sidewalks. You know, the, the streets weren't really paved. There was no <laughs> silver line. Uh, we had to put wooden planks leading up to the bakery when we opened because there was physically no pavement to get up to the bakery. But it was also in the middle of a really strong residential area. It was right next to Boston Medical Center. There weren't any places to get sandwiches or coffee, um, maybe a couple places within the hospital, but nothing right there on Washington Street. And so, you know, we opened up not knowing if we would get 10 people or 100 people. And I think that first day we probably saw three or 400 people, way more than we expected. I remember Sunday mornings. You opened at 8 or 9? I don't remember when. Uh, at the time, we opened at 9. We currently yeah. open at 8. I remember there was a huge line. It would yes. form about quarter of 9. Right. And the mayor of Boston, the former mayor of Boston, yeah. was standing in line, I remember. Actually, I think he jumped the line. To be, <laughs> to be honest, I think he jumped the line. I think he was buying some of your wonderful filled donuts. He was a regular customer. Yes. Yeah, he, he showed up. He was a happy camper there. Yeah. So tell me about that great donut. So the donut is a recipe that I learned when I was working at Payard Patisserie in New York City with Francois Payard, and he called them boules de Berlin. Um, it was little Berlin balls, and we filled them with vanilla cream. So when I came to Boston and opened Flower, I wanted to do something similar because I really loved what we had at Payard. Um, so we still only offer them on Sundays. We just do them once a week, um, and we fill them with a vanilla cream or with raspberry jam. And it's a rich dough that's similar to a brioche, not quite as rich, and then we fry them fresh on Sundays and then fill them. Mm. I've forgotten about those. I need to go back and eat one. Um, so how do you think about your menu? I know that you've had certain, the chicken with jicama. That's I mean, been on there since day one. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. Since it's been a long, almost 20 years. Uh, how do you decide about taking things off the menu or leaving things on the menu? How much change is good? 
That's a tough question because we are constantly wanting to change and add new things. But as soon as we take something off to add something new, we instantly hear from guests who are really disappointed because they miss um, their old turkey sandwich or their old tuna sandwich. We just took off our tuna sandwich to introduce a sweet potato. I noticed that, by the way. Yeah, a lot of people are missing that. Your curry tuna. Yep, the curry tuna. That was on the menu for a long time. We took it off for a short period, brought it back on. We took it off again. So... At this point, we like to introduce new things, and then what we try to do is reintroduce the old things later on. Um, so th- then you decide, in your great wisdom, to do something totally different. You open Myers and Chang Restaurant, high-end restaurant, totally different concept, totally different business model. So what was that like? That was a lot more challenging than I expected. Uh, Christopher, my husband, and I had been dating from about the second or third year that Flower had opened. Um, We'd been dating, but not really spending a lot of time together because he was running restaurants, which meant that he was, you know, in his work environment until often midnight or one or two in the morning sometimes. And I was getting ready for work at one or two in the morning to get to the bakery by 3 a.m. And so we weren't really crossing paths that often. And we thought if we do a project together, then maybe we'll actually see each other. And so we were looking around for spaces and Christopher loves Asian food. I grew up eating only Asian food and we wanted to just see if we could do something together that would bring our love of Asian food to Boston. So you have a new book, Myers and Chang at Home, right? Yes. So uh, give me a quick primer on like the the really key Asian noodles. Like what what are three or four I really need to know and why? Okay. So the basic Asian noodles, there's just your basic wheat lo mein noodle. um, And that is, it typically comes dried. And then just like a dried spaghetti noodle that you might make for an Italian dish, you cook it, um, you blanch it cook it, and then you can stir fry it with other things. Then there's uh, the chow fun noodles, so those are the flat rice noodles. Um, those, we buy them fresh, and then you have to, you cut them up, and then you can stir fry them with a little bit of sauce, and then they soften up. There's also the really thin rice vermicelli noodles. They look like, uh, it looks a little bit like white, hairy, like old hair. Um, but once you soak them in hot water for a minute, they soften up, and then you can either eat them like that as a cold salad or you can stir-fry them. I thought – well, I've thought a lot of things that are – <laughs> I thought that Dan Dan noodles was, was with ground pork. Your version is not with ground pork. Ah, I guess it's Taiwanese. Exactly. Um, so – and you, you described the term Dan Dan, which I did not know what that meant. So maybe you could just talk about that. So Dan Dan is when the workers in the field – would get fed by somebody who would come through with the long pole with two buckets, one on either end of the pole. And the noodles are in one bucket and then the sauce is in the other. And that person would sell noodles and sauce, Dan Dan uh, noodles, to the workers. It was inexpensive. And the key to successful Dan Dan noodles is to make sure that the sauce is super, super flavorful because what you'd like to do is fill up your workers with the noodles. And to do that, you need a sauce that's really flavorful. Otherwise, you'd need too much sauce. And so the Dan Dan noodles, the Taiwanese ones, are made with uh, sesame and peanut. But then Szechuan Dan Dan, which is the one that you're thinking of, is made with ground pork. 
You talk about walks in the book. Um, do, do you believe for the home cook in America that a flat bottom walk is a better choice than the, the classic, more conical design? I think that's better. I mean, it really does depend on your stove. But the purpose of the walk is that it gives you a great surface area for whatever it is that you're stir frying. And if you get a flat bottom walk and it can sit on your stove, it'll heat up better than what we have at the restaurant is a huge gas burner that the wok sits in, and so every part of it gets right. hot. Growing up, we didn't have a wok. We used a big, huge skillet that my mom would just heat up on her electric stove. I notice in the book you have a shrimp dish with a head and tail on. Shrimp heads, let's, let's talk about things like that. Are Americans okay with the shell on and the, and the head on or not? You know, it's funny. When we put this dish on the menu, and it, we've had it in different iterations since we've opened— I was surprised at how many people were squeamish about eating the shell and eating the heads just because I have eaten it since I've been a little kid. So to me, it was it's as if you went up to somebody and told them they could eat the skin of an apple and they shied away from you. I just to me, it's so natural. And I'm surprised when people don't. And I will spend time in the restaurant looking at people who get this these dishes when we have them on the menu, and I will suggest to them, you know, very nicely, but I'll say, you know, if you, if you just eat the whole thing, you'll get all of the flavor. Um, I think it's all about familiarity. You know, they're not used to it. They have no idea that it's okay. They don't know what's inside the head, and I think people really shy away from that. But to me, it's, I mean, that's where all of the best parts are. It's, you know, all the juicy stuff. Do you ever get to the point sometimes when, when people come in, they don't understand the food, and, and they don't quite get it. Do you ever just want to say, <laughs> come on, just eat the whole thing? I mean, Well, you know, Christopher has taught me that if a guest can look at you and say, you have that ingredient, you have that ingredient, you have that ingredient, why can't you do this? Then it's true. It's like, why, why would you not do it? He tells the story of when he opened Via Mata, which was a high-end Italian restaurant, that they said that they wouldn't do takeout. And there was a guest who came in and wanted to order one of the pizzas to go. And um, apparently they told the guest, no, we don't do takeout. So he said, okay. So he sat down, he ordered a pizza, he <laughs> took one bite, and then he said, okay, I'm done. Can I get a doggy bag? <laughs> and at that point, they realized, you know what? Right. If we can do it, we should just do it. So that's kind of how we feel. I love that guest. <laughs> um, Joanne, it's been a great pleasure having you. Thank we, you. It, it's been 17 years. We should do this more often. We should, so definitely. Thank, thanks for showing up. Thank you. That was Joanne Chang, founder of Boston's Flower Bakery, also co-founder of the restaurant Myers & Chang. You know, ordering dinner can be really stressful. You know that you really should order the pig's ear pad thai instead of the udon noodles with chicken. Should you order what you want or what you think you should try? It's like the French. They're suspicious of change, but Subway has opened 66 fast food joints in Paris alone. As the French would say, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. The more things change, the more they are the same. Right now, I'm heading over to the kitchen of Milk Street to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Good. You know, a few years ago, I started cooking out of some of Yotam Otolenghi's books, like millions of other people. And uh, I found lots of recipes I liked. One of them was salmon creme, which is essentially a spicy tomato sauce. You cook the salmon in um, we liked it so much here at Milk Street, we found someone in New York who makes this at a restaurant. So who was that and what is this dish? So we talked to Inat Admani, who is a restaurateur and a native of Tel Aviv. Uh, and she makes this delicious version of the creme. Like you say, it's a very 
flavorful, spicy, and spiced tomato sauce. So we made that with salmon. You can make it with all kinds of different fish, but because this was a weeknight meal and we wanted it to be really easy and accessible, we used salmon. So to build our flavor, Chris, we sauteed three cloves of garlic, not the 20 that the original recipe had. Uh, we added jalapeno and scallion, and then we bloomed our spices, which are cumin and coriander and paprika in hot oil, and that really built a lot of flavor. And to that, we added our tomatoes and juices, and there we have kind of a braising bed for our pieces of salmon. So these are fillets or steaks, skin on, skin off? So we use skin on fillets and of course Chris you want to make sure that your fillets are all the same size so that they cook evenly and normally I you know we would cut off that salmon skin in, in a braising situation where it's not going to get nice and crisp but we actually found that if you cook it flesh side down with the skin up the salmon absorbs really great flavor from the sauce and then you can just peel off the salmon skin once it's cooked. Please get rid of that skin. I mean, if it's really crispy, it's okay. But not, that bottom skin is kind of tough. Yeah, it doesn't add a whole lot here. So this is cooks for like 10 minutes or something? Yeah, it only takes about 10 minutes. Um, and then we only cook it to about 115, 120 degrees. That's what we prefer. A little bit, you know, um, undercooked maybe in the center. A really well-done piece of salmon is going to be kind of dry and flaky. So this is a great time to break out your thermometer, but you could certainly cook it a bit more if you like your salmon well done. And the whole recipe is like 30 minutes, start to finish? Start to finish. Uh, and of course you want to finish it at the end, um, as we like to at Milk Street, we add a bunch of herbs, uh, we add a little bit of lemon, and we actually drizzle it with a little extra olive oil for richness. So Catherine, thank you. Uh, salmon creme, it's a skillet cooked salmon. It cooks in about 10 minutes in a sort of a spicy, herby tomato sauce. Uh, it's one of my favorite ways to cook salmon. Thank you. You're welcome, Chris. You can find our recipe for salmon creme at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host Sarah Melton right after the break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. 
Moe Farm Ray Salmon offers restaurant quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre seasoned portions or cold smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold smoked ultra thin slices as well as center cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M O W I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to see if we actually know something about cooking. I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, you ready to take some calls? Chris, let's do this. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Ann from Dalton, Georgia. Hi, Ann. How are you? Hi, Ann. I'm great. Thanks for taking my call. A pleasure. How can we help you? I have Rose Levy Barenbaum's Cake Bible, which contains this great recipe for flourless chocolate cake. I have thought that it would be nice to make it in individual portions and ramekins, but I don't know how. When you make a layer cake into cupcakes, it's real easy. You just scale down the time test for doneness. But this recipe, you do the eggs in a double boiler, and then you combine everything. You put it into an 8-inch springform pan for a total of 15 minutes in a 425-degree oven. And when you pull it out, it's still jiggly, and you just have faith that it will chill to firmness, and it always does. So I don't know how to scale 15 minutes to individual portions, and I don't know how to test for doneness when it's supposed to be jiggly when it comes out. I've actually made that recipe, and I've also made it in a ramekin. Obviously, the cooking time is going to be less. I might reduce the oven to 400, so you don't overcook the sides and the outside. Give you a little bit more window there for doneness. I don't think you need a, a water bath for this, but Huh. It's something. Oh, don't let Rose hear you say that. Rose is very, <laughs> I know. very, bath. very D- precise. D- does she use a water bath for this? Yes. Oh, she does. Okay. Well, then put it in nine by thirteen, hot water halfway up, and then you're going to have to go in and jiggle, use tongs or something, and just they jiggle should, one of these them. These should be jiggly too, even and though they on a smaller scale. They should be exactly the same as the other one. But again, I reduced the oven to four hundred just to give you a little more time. Because as okay. you know, if it's you cook it two minutes too much in a ramekin, it's going to be overcooked. How much would you reduce the time? You know, it's going to be no more than half the time, probably even less. I would set the timer for five minutes, and then I go in and take a pair of tongs and an oven mitt and just jiggle one of them. And by the way, you should probably take it out 
before you think you should. It'll cook up pretty quickly when it comes out of the oven in that hot ramekin. So you've made it in the original pan, right? Right. How high up does it come in that pan? Maybe about half. I've never really paid attention. Okay, well, here's something that you're going to just think is so weird. I believe that I've taken cake recipes and scaled them down, put them in ramekins, and cooked them as long as they came up as high in the ramekins as they did in the pan. They took the Uh same amount of time at the same temperature. I know that doesn't make any sense at all. I know. I know. Chris is looking at me like I've got ten heads. Two heads. The other trick someone told me once is if you can smell the chocolate in the kitchen from the oven— You got to get it out of the oven because that's when you're losing flavor. That is such a Julia thing to say. If you can smell it, it's done. Well, I think in baking in general, when you start to smell it, it's probably done or almost done. Oh, and one last thing. Don't tell your guests what it is. Yes. You can either serve a chocolate cake, a chocolate custard. Chocolate pudding. A chocolate flan, a chocolate pudding. (laughs) A chocolate half and half. I mean, just make it up. Never tell them. Right. As Julia Child said, also, never apologize, never explain. Right. Um, you know, that you did something wrong. Just reposition the title. Okay. That's how I've lived my life. Yeah. Reposition. It works. Anyway, give that a shot, and I, I think it'll work fine. Great advice. Thank okay. you very much. Yeah. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, my name is Dustin. Hi, Dustin. Where are you calling from? Burbank, California. Oh, Hello. I've been to Burbank. Yes. How can we that, help you? That's all I know about Burbank. <laughs> I've been there, and I, I had a good time. But uh, how can oh, we yeah, help you? I, it's not too exciting. I just moved there from, I made a little move from Koreatown in Los Angeles oh. to uh, Burbank. It was great living in Koreatown because I was able to get all these ingredients so, that you guys start cooking with in Milk yeah. Street at all the Asian markets. Nice. How can we help you today? So I had a question about anchovies, because in a lot of the Milk Street recipes, you guys call for anchovies to get that sort of savory flavor. Umami. Yeah. So I was wondering if there's a difference between using anchovy paste and mincing up anchovy fillets, because I'm going to be honest, I kind of prefer the convenience of the anchovy paste, but I didn't know if I was missing out on something by using the paste instead of the fillets. Well, do you want the official answer or my answer? (laughs) There's a choice Uh, here, or you can have both. The official answer is the stuff in the anchovy paste is not as high quality as actual anchovies. They put other things in it, so there are other ingredients. My answer is it doesn't really matter because you're using a couple of anchovies, you know, a half teaspoon, teaspoon. It's a very small amount, and if you're making a super stew or whatever you're making, you'll never know the difference. So I would go with convenience and use the paste. Everybody else at Milk Street will tell me I'm you're a barbarian. Wrong. Uh, oil-packed anchovies will keep a long time in the fridge. Yeah, that's the thing. They will keep for a couple yeah, of months. But the paste, you know, it's like tomato paste. It's just easy to easier work Easier to with. squeeze out of that, too. Because I, I don't think with, you know, a teaspoon, you're ever going to know the difference, really. Believe it or not, I agree. What? Yes. Is it about, like, one filet would be, like, a teaspoon? About a half a teaspoon. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah, yeah so, yeah, cheat. It's fine. I mean, if you're going to put them on top of a pizza or something, that's different. For the paste as a background flavoring, I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Okay. What, we agree? I know. What's this wrong? is no fun. I know, really. I thought you were going to yell at me about quality no, or no, something. No, because sometimes anyway. we actually agree. Well, thank you. Yeah, so thanks much. for coming. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I just have to say, I have so enjoyed Milk Street, especially the TV show. It was really slick and really sharp. Oh, thank it's you. Really, really fantastic. Dustin, I really appreciate the kind words, and thanks for calling. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye.
This is Most Great Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Call us about salted versus unsalted butter or why pigs have wings. The number is 855-426-9843. 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Marilyn from Louisville, Kentucky. How are you? I am well. How are you? Uh, we're pretty good, Sarah. Yes. How can we help you? I have a question about chicken feet. <laughs> I go to the farmer's market and I buy bags of chicken necks to make my chicken broth. Yeah. And because it's a farmer's market, the farmers will say, hey, do you want a bag of feet also? And I'm thinking that sounds good. But then I'm also thinking that's the part that scratches around in the dirt. How do I make sure when I cook the broth that those things are clean? Well, I think the first question is, why do you want to use the feet? I mean, I've cooked calves feet to make gelatin, but it had no flavor. I wonder whether the chicken feet are doing anything but adding a gelatin to it. Oh, but that's a plus. Well, yeah. But I mean, you wouldn't want to have a whole bag of chicken feet with a whole bag of chicken necks. Then you'd have a rubber ball by the time you're done, I think. It would be very, very Well, a few chicken feet here and there. I don't think it's going to add flavor. I think it will just add gelatin to it. Oh. Is is my guess. I mean, we've made stock lots of different ways over the years. And the reason people use necks and bones and other things is because it was frugal. I mean, that's how the French did it. Mm -hmm. If you want more flavor, the best way to make chicken stock is throw a chicken in water and cook it. (laughs) And then you have, like, fabulous stock. The feet are more of a gelatin thing. So I would just wash them off, scrub them, and throw a few in. What do you think, though? I mean, when she said that thing about them stepping around yeah. and dirt and all this and that, what do you think about maybe blanching them briefly before throwing them into your stock? I just hot water and scrub them. I think I would blanch them. I looked it up on the web, and there was one website that said to blanch them and then peel off nah, the membrane. Nah, that's too no, much work. No, that's, no. That's too much work. But I would blanch them just to be safe. Okay, and you would not make the broth out of strictly chicken? No, I I agree with Chris on that one. There's not enough meat on there. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, what you want when you're making stock, the meat's got the flavor, the bones have the um, gelatin. Everything brings something to the mix, but if you have no meat, you're not going to have much flavor. Oh, that's good. And there's no fat either. You can just cook a whole chicken. You can throw in some leeks, you can throw in some ginger, you can throw in some scallions, whatever you want cook it for a while, turn the heat off, let it sit. The breast will be perfectly cooked. Take it out. Then you can take the meat off the chicken and make anything you want with it. It's a classic Cantonese white cooked chicken. there might be a recipe for this yes. in Milk Street Magazine. The charter which, issue, yes. The charter issue. Mm. But the point is you end up with like a couple quarts of chicken stock that is fabulous, and you have the meat, and you can use the meat as well. That's the easiest way to do this, in my opinion. But Yeah, I was using the feet. Because one, of the gelatin, and two, I like the idea of eating the whole animal. Good for you. Well, the Chinese love chicken feet because yeah. they like the texture. But so. anyway, no, I think a few chicken feet, it's a good idea. Yes, yeah. a few. Okay. A few okay. good chicken feet. A Thanks few. for calling. Okay, Marilyn. <laughs> Thank you very yes. much. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Hey, Chris. Hey, Sarah. This is Amy Hurst. I have a question about mole sauce. I heard of a restaurant in Mexico City that serves aged mole sauce that's been aged for over a thousand days. Yeah. And I would love to try to do that at home. Uh, really, that's a really terrible idea. I, I, I know who this is. His name is Oliveira. He's the star chef in Mexico City. He has a place I've been to in New York called Cosme. I have heard he has a three-year-old mole aged sauce. 
I don't know how he does it, but, but I, I would, wouldn't don't try this do at it home. at home. No, really? never. It sounded really interesting, but I, the, my first thought was, how do you do that? So it's not... Uh, going to kill you. Going to kill you. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm I mean, sorry. I, I mean, I, I, would, I don't know if he serves this at Cosme. You might be able to actually talk to someone in his kitchen or email them, but I wouldn't do it at home, probably. Oh, really? Okay. Can I just ask you a question, though? So you were going to make a mole and wait a thousand days before you ate it? <laughs> oh, just for a couple months. I just oh. wanted to experiment. I just didn't oh. know how. Well, you know, we could. Sarah's looking at me like, don't tell her to do it. But you know what? I, I, I won't do it, Sarah. I won't do it. I don't know. I'm there's, curious. I mean, there's acid in there. Yeah. There's salt in there. Those yeah. are two preservatives. There's sugar, maybe sugar, natural sugar anyway. You know, those are all the things that go in a jam or a jelly or a condiment that could last for years on the door of your fridge. But I just think three years is too much. I mean, a thousand days. Well, she said two months. Okay. She's going to do it. You know, meanwhile, Cosme is in Chelsea and I live in Chelsea. Maybe I'll just go in to see. I'll charge it to you, Chris, and I'll have a nice lunch, and I'll get to the bottom of this. What do you think? Or maybe you want to come with me. Let's go in and, you know, pounce and find out the answer. I have an idea. Why don't we read my American Express card number on the air so yes. everybody can go to Cosme and enjoy the 1,000-day right. moly sauce? Right. Well, maybe I'll do a little <laughs> sleuthing. Okay. That's a good idea. Okay. <laughs> okay, we'll definitely check into yeah. this. So. Oh, thank you. I appreciate okay. it, guys. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for calling. Thanks. All right, take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is about toasting your grains. A few years ago, I came across a recipe for steel-cut oats. For oatmeal, you started with a couple tablespoons of butter, a cup of steel-cut oats, and you sautéed the oats in the butter. They turned really nutty. And when you finished making the oatmeal, you got a lot of extra flavor. So it turns out that that technique can also be used with bulgur wheat, couscous, which really isn't a grain, it's a pasta, or even flour destined for cookies or other baked goods. Here's how to do it. Toast them in a dry, medium-hot skillet, stirring often and being mindful to avoid scorching. Stir frequently until browned. Then you can use that flour or those grains in any recipe you like. You have much more flavor. It takes about five minutes to do the toasting. Is anything less than half a pizza a slice, or does it have to be at an acute angle? If it's so narrow that you can't fold it, is it still a slice? Is a piece of a slice also a slice? Should all the slices of pizza be the same, or is variation better? Dan Pashman of the Sportful Podcast is here to debate these eternal questions. Dan, how are you? Good, Chris. How are you doing? Is this National Dan Pashman Pizza Day, or what? I mean, every day is National Dan Passion Pizza Day, I like to think. But um, I had a question for you, Chris. Do you like a slice of pizza? Yes, of course. And how would you define a slice? You mean in, in the number of degrees of arc? Yes, or... yes. <laughs> like if you take a pizza and just cut it in half a diameter and you have 50% of a pizza, is that a slice? No, and it's also not a slice if it's just a tiny little piece. Yeah. So draw the line for me then. What is the minimum and maximum size for a slice of pizza for it to be have the word slice? Uh, it has to be at least an eighth and preferably a sixth. So like a small enough slice that you can pick it up and eat it with your hand comfortably, but big enough that you can kind of stick your teeth into it. Yeah, I, I want to feel like I'm getting something substantive here. I, I, this is not an hors d'oeuvre. 
Well, because we, we, we got into this geometric discussion on the Sporkful podcast recently. Uh, we had a, a scientist who called in, and he was involved in this argument with his family because he believes, and I am inclined to agree, that if you take just less than half a pizza, if it's a 179-degree angle, it's a slice. What? I, I, explain that to me. Why is 49% of a pizza a slice? Well, because really a, a slice is a portion I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm on the fence a little bit about the 179 degrees, but I definitely believe that a right angle slice, like a 90 degree angle, is absolutely a slice. A quarter of a pizza is definitely a slice. Here's my definition. It can't be so big where if you pick it up and you fold it by the crust in the middle and the sides get curled up, which is what you need to do, right, with a really big piece, it has to be manageable in the hand. Well, I think it could be done. You might have to fold it twice. No, no, no. I, I, no, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but Chris, by that definition, why is it possible that a piece of pizza could be too small to constitute a slice? Because I think it it uh, it defies the American spirit of generosity and fairness. <laughs> no, no. I, I'm, I'm thinking well, like it's not a slice that someone gives you from the pizza they just made. I'm thinking you go to, you know, some some pizza parlor, right, with, with the Fanta orange soda, et cetera, and you order a slice. There has to be a minimum size from a commercial perspective, and that's how I'm looking at it. Okay, from a commercial perspective, yeah. yes, you know, for your money, and, and, and certainly uh, if you're at a slice place, uh, the slices should be sliced equally because you're going to pay the same price for each slice. Right. But, but let's say you got a whole pie and you're just sort of, you're at a table or you're at you know, someone's home, they, they order it out for pizza, what if someone takes a regular size, one-eighth of a pizza slice, and then slices it again, slices it in half to make a sixteenth? Is that a slice of pizza? Well, they're no longer my friend. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what, what, cheap, what, what cheap neighbor friend would give you one-eighth of a pizza cut in half? Well, what if I said, hey, Chris, I want another slice of pizza? And you were like, you know, I don't really want a That's whole different. other slice, but I want a little something. I'm going to just cut myself a half of one of these slices. No, no, okay, okay. We, we, have, we have to set the rules. Okay. The rules are someone offers you a slice without any direction about size from you. The question is what fairly designates the minimum size? And I would say a substantive size would be the only proper way to go. If you specifically say give me a tiny bit, fine. But if you ask for a tiny bit and I give you the tiny bit, is it still a slice? No. What is it? I don't know. <laughs> It's not a slice. A sub-slice? You're looking at it strictly from a physics point of view, correct? I'm looking at it from a geometric point of view and from a linguistic point of view. Uh, I mean, to okay. me, a slice is like really any piece of a pizza that's less than half. Okay, okay. The only way to resolve philosophical arguments like that is to go to the logical extreme. What if you were able, with using a laser, to cut a one-degree arc of pizza out of 360 degrees? Would that be a slice? Yes, Okay, well, you, now we know you're <laughs> – now where you know you're just a loony to. <laughs> why, why wouldn't it be a slice? Of course it's a slice, Chris. Why isn't that not, not a slice? It's a very small one. It's not – you're right that it may not be a generous portion. But, but strictly speaking, why is that not a slice? Because in the colloquial expression of pizza parlors, a slice is a thing. Pizza parlors have defined slice. All right, I'll agree to disagree, and I'll move on to a related question, Chris. You know, in the Midwest, many pizzas are cut into small squares, some of which have right. no edge crust. 
are those slices. If you get a square that's three inches by three inches with no crust, is that a slice of pizza? No. No, you got to have crust. I'm, I'm sorry. No. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I lived in Chicago for a number of years. I'm with you that the square slices are a little problematic for that reason. But the nice thing about them is that you can take two of those squares and put one on top of the other and make a sandwich. And that's okay. delicious. Well, that, fair enough. And and I and people in Chicago, they have the great food and they're lovely people. But no, I, I, I love the crust. And the crust is also the mark of a great pizza. Yeah, I think you're right about that. You need, you know, it, but it, I guess a lot of it comes down to the old question: Is it okay to eat pizza with a knife and fork? Well, in, in Naples, they do, and the reason is they use fresh buffalo mozzarella, which is very watery, and so the crust in the middle actually is not very crisp, so you really couldn't pick it up. So, knife and fork is de rigueur in Naples, where the New York style pizza came from. I'm glad to hear you said that, Chris. I'm glad we found this point of agreement because I also have have defended the knife and fork use in certain pizzas, especially higher quality pizzas, like you say. I don't have a problem with knife and fork, but I, I need crust. <laughs> so 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 the so the just to summarize this this discussion about pizza, the answer is if I go to your house or if if we go out to, to dinner, you order a pizza and offer me a slice, I should be very concerned. <laughs> I'll give you however big of a portion you like. I promise you won't leave my house hungry. But either way, regardless of the size, I'm going to call it a slice. Dan Passion, we disagree about the size of a slice, but please always give us crust, right? Oh, uh, yeah. But then those those little Midwestern pizza sandwiches are delicious. <laughs> Dan Passion, thank you. Thanks, Chris. Early in the show, I chatted with Brad Leone. You know, Brad's web series is called It's Alive. That was the name of a 1974 horror movie about a homicidal baby who traveled through storm trains on a murder rampage. So if you think about it, fermentation may be a bit like a horror movie. Inanimate foods bubble and come alive. And if you do it wrong, well, you just might end up dead. That's it for this week on Mill Street Radio. You can listen to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, head to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our first season of Milk Street Television, or order the Milk Street Cookbook. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Associate producer Carly Helmetag. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Our theme music is by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.